Welcome to Episode 5 of School PR Drive Time, a podcast produced by NCSPRA about driving the narrative forward for public education through the work of school PR professionals. I'm your co-host, Stacia Harris. Today, I'm joined by Ken Dirksen with Wayne County Schools. Ken is also our NCSPRA president. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Stacia. I'm looking forward to today's show. So in this episode, we're talking with Dr. Mike Klumpner. He's the founder and CEO of Threat Suppression Incorporated. Their specialty is public safety and security. They provide a wide range of training to first responders, military personnel, government officials, and more. We're here today to talk about school safety and how that landscape has changed during a disruptive global pandemic and civil unrest. Stacia, while COVID-19 remains top of mind for school communication leaders and district leaders, with students returning to our school campuses for face-to-face instruction, it's vital that the focus of school safety and more traditional pre-COVID-19 threats remain a top priority. That's right. We cover a wide range of pretty serious topics today. Uh, Mike had a lot of wonderful things to say, so let's get into the show. Dr. Klumpner, hello, and thanks so much for being with us today. We have lots to cover, but I'd love for you to get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and Threat Suppression Incorporated. Sure, I'll keep it very brief. It's uh, my pleasure to join you. So I have 28 years experience in public safety. Uh, I work as a full-time fire battalion chief with the Charlotte Fire Department. I've been in uh, the fire service now for 26 years. I've been a paramedic for 25 years. I've been a law enforcement officer for 11 years, uh, signed a SWAT the whole time. I got my PhD uh, almost six years ago in Homeland Security Policy, and the majority of all my research that I have done since about 2005 has focused on active shooters and uh, terrorist mass killers. And so as a part of that research, not only are we looking at the events, but we're really trying to figure out the psychology of these people and why these events are happening. Great summary. And so we want to just jump right into it today. Uh, Obviously, you have uh, an incredible range of experience, but we're here today to to learn from you um, as school PR professionals. How do we navigate this this world of COVID that has created so many challenges for our families and for our staff and for um, ourselves? So um, just sort of jumping right into it, and and it might be kind of obvious, what are, the, what are some of the challenges that you see COVID has created for our school community? I must tell you that uh, I am biased in my answer because my wife is a nurse and she works for the state health department and she is assigned to the COVID response team. So she's been working from home uh, for the last six months. We have a, a, a little baby boy. And so I've been hearing all the conversations that are going on with regards to COVID. So I have a, a look behind the curtain And I would definitely say that COVID has presented a lot of challenges for the schools. First of all, they're having to gauge between the safety of the students and trying to figure out if um, they're going to be safer at home or if they're going to be safer at school. And the whole um, nexus of that conversation is which threat is greater for these students? Is the threat of getting COVID, does that outweigh the threat of being in a home environment that may be abusive or non-conductive, non-conducive to learning? I know one of the big problems that we had um, here in the city where I'm at is a very large number of students don't have internet. And so they're trying to figure out how do we get them Wi-Fi hotspots? How do we get them laptops? And in some of the cases, as soon as they gave the students uh, a hotspot or a laptop, someone in the house would steal it. And so um, it's trying to figure out, you know, how do we navigate this certainly uncharted territory 
and do what's best for the students. And so I have a eight year old and obviously a, a newborn. And so I've been watching her as well. And it's been very challenging to see um, the limited social interaction that she's had with other kids and how disruptive that is in the learning process for a child. And so you can see just in the time that she's had limited interaction, you can see that you're already starting to lose problem solving skills. You're losing um, some ability just to navigate with your friends. So I think COVID has certainly presented a lot of unique challenges for learning all the way K through 12 and into university. And it's uh, been a testament to our teachers and our administrators to see as they weigh everything and try and figure out, you know, what is going to be the best option, both for the students and the staff. Dr. Kleppner, you've had an extensive background in researching threats, school shootings, active shooters, um, both in the school environments and in the community environments. Looking at the lack of social interaction and looking at some of the variables that could potentially play into an active shooter situation or someone who may be thinking about becoming an active shooter. What are your thoughts as far as now that schools are going back into plan B and plan A, what are some things that school districts and communication leaders need to be thinking about as students return to the campuses? You know, it's interesting because I, I almost think that we can take a look at what the Department of Defense does. And so they realized that when they had military personnel coming back from combat, that they needed to have a reintegration period before they came back into the community. And so now as uh, military personnel return, they'll have a 15 to 30 day reintegration period where they get kind of reacclimated. They're not back into the community. They're, uh, a lot of resources are being given to them. It's kind of a transition period. And I think that uh, teachers need to understand <clears throat> that that's where these kids are at right now. As they start to come back to school, they're in a unique transition period. And some of these kids may have had other siblings to play with. And some of these kids may have really been socially isolated for the last several months. So we can't just jump right back into the school year. And I know one of the big concerns is uh, school, uh, school teachers are trying to figure out how much learning really occurred in the latter part of last year, how much learning occurred over the summer. But one of the bigger issues is we have to look at what is their social interaction ability right now as they kind of transition back into the classroom and they start working with other students. So like you said, you know, that, that is one of the big issues that we've seen with um, adolescent uh, perpetrators. In a lot of cases, they had um, poor social interaction skills. In some cases, they were self-imposed social isolationists. And so we continue to see that when we have kids that don't have a good support structure, whenever something uh, traumatic happens to them, it uh, the effects are often cataclysmic because they don't have that group, that peer support group that's right next to them. So I think this we're really in a reintegration period as the school year starts and teachers have to realize that maybe their number one job right now is being more of a mental health professional than it is an educator and you know kind of bringing these kids back together letting them know they're safe letting them know that you know we've got some things we've got to work on and just kind of regrounding everyone and starting almost from scratch again and i think uh, what's interesting is this whole movement to get kids back into school. Um, and I will say, you know, on one hand, remote learning is working really well for some families. Um, I know in our district, we're about 40% remote and they're loving it. They're having a great time. They're learning and they're good. And, but we have 60% of our parents who said, I'm okay with in-person instruction. And, and we're really feeling uh, the pressure to figure out a way to safely, especially our young kids, get them uh, back into the building for a little more time um, than they are now. 
So as we are working with our district leadership, I'd like to dig into, you know, what should we be sharing with our superintendent and maybe our student services director? What can we tell them to kind of um, help create a space where we can address these issues before we get our kids back into a building for, you know, say five days a week? And you touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to dig into that a little more. You know, um, one thing that I I think that school administrators need to recognize is uh, distance learning shaming. And so I say that in that there are families that don't have the ability to have their kids stay at home. And it may be, you know, oftentimes we have a single parent family, that parent is working. In the case with my wife and I, fortunately, she was able to stay home, but she's going to have to go back to work soon. And she's She's as essential as they come. She's a COVID nurse and I work in an essential job. And it's interesting in our community, just the the interaction that she's had with other uh, parents and uh, in a lot of um, families here in our neighborhood, the mother stays at home. And so they almost um, look at us a little differently in that we're taking unnecessary risks by putting our child back to school. And I think that that's one thing that the district really needs to make sure to emphasize with everyone is there are students who are coming back. There are parents that don't have the luxury of being able to stay at home and um, do distance learning. So I think that that's, that's certainly one avenue. And I would make sure that there's um, additional resources available within the district in order to help parents that may have issues like this. I know that this, is, this was something that my wife and I, I mean, we had a very long talk about her quitting her job so that she could stay home and watch the kids. And, and she ended up, I mean, she saw all of her other nurses were just getting bombarded and she had to go back to work. But I mean, there's, she took a a pretty big mental health hit by saying, am I doing the wrong thing for our kids by having our daughter go back to school? So I, I think that's certainly an area that has to be addressed head on and administrators have to let parents know that there's, there's no wrong or right answer here. Some people have the ability to have their kids stay at home and some don't, but providing some additional resources and saying, if you, if you have some concerns, talk to us and maybe we can have some mental health resources and, and just again, talk with these parents and let them know that your child is safe. And honestly, in my opinion, I think that uh, having Addie, our, our daughter Addison, go back to school has been very good for her. I mean, she's, you can tell her mood is lifted, her spirits are lifted. She's now interacting with kids. It's getting kids need a routine. They absolutely need a routine. And so getting them back into school has been really good for Addison. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case for every parent, but in, in our case, it, it's worked out well. And so I want to switch gears uh, as well. Um, obviously, lots of great advice for, for our families, but um, our, our teachers are just sort of caught in this mess as well. And they're, they're also in, in a very strange position and, and certainly have lots of mixed emotions. Can you tell me a little bit about, from, from your perspective, um, what are some stresses that our teachers are under that we should be aware of? Sure. So I would say, um, number one, you may have um, teachers who have made a very important decision to come back into the classroom. And they may be taking a significant calculated risk by doing so. They may have small children. They may have uh, other family members who are immune compromised. So they're taking a big step and a big leap of faith coming back in the classroom, uh, knowing that school administrators are going to do everything they can to minimize the risk of COVID. So I think that that's, that's one thing certainly that they're looking at. 
I know now they've got to be, you know, the social distancing police, which is incredibly hard with young kids. And so not only are they worried about curriculum and everything else, but they've also got to continue to remind kids, you know, stay in your plexiglass little cube, wash your hands, don't touch each other. So there's all that going on. And then when we get into the distance learning, that creates a whole entire conundrum in itself. And I know that there have been uh, many teachers who have expressed significant um, frustration with distance learning and all kinds of problems that have come up. I mean, there's been, you know, the bombing of meetings where people have, have come into the meetings. There have been adults acting inappropriately and kids acting inappropriately on camera. Uh, I know, and I just um, listened to a, um, a lecturer the other day talking about, uh, he was talking about body-worn cameras in law enforcement and how there's such a big focus on accountability and transparency, but now teachers are in the same boat that law enforcement officers are and every move that they do is being scrutinized. And so there's, I know that there's a push by uh, a lot of teachers to get away from distance learning and get back in the classroom because it would be the same as if we put cameras in the classroom and every single thing that they do is now up for scrutiny. So. I can understand and feel the frustration of the teachers as this year is unlike anything that they have ever uh, trained for, prepared for, and there's probably a lot of issues that are going on that they have to address. Dr. Kleppner, um, just to further explore this conversation, teachers, principals, they are working so hard and the stress levels have, and anxiety issues have never been higher based on many of the reasons you've just discussed. Can you talk about the importance from the district administration level of promoting employee assistance programs, making sure concerns are being listened to, making sure that, that supports are being put in place for those teachers or, or staff that are just highly anxious, whether it's due to returning to the workplace because of their concerns about COVID-19 or for the stress of having to teach face-to-face -face and remote all while trying to do it in a, in a day when they're really doing a day and a half's worth of work. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's incumbent upon administrators to make sure that they're supporting the teachers. And like you said, um, making sure that everyone is aware of employee assistance programs and, and other aids that are out there. But honestly, what I've found, one of, the, um, one of the best tools is just simply doing a debrief with the teachers. So um, pull them in on Friday and let them have a vent session and let the teachers kind of go around the room and explain, you know, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the frustrations they dealt with that week? Acknowledge them and then see if other teachers, other staff have solutions. And if not, as administrators start working on solutions, but at the very least allow them the opportunity uh, to vent their frustration in, in a group of, of peers where they honestly feel like administration is recognizing and acknowledging the challenges that they're going through. And maybe we don't have a solution. Maybe, maybe at that time there isn't a good solution, but at the very least the administrators are saying, we understand what you're going through. We, we can, you know, we, we, we got your back. And so I, I think that there's a whole lot of different programs that are available, but honestly, we all like to just talk with our peers. And at the end of the day, we want to know that our peers support us and that our administrators and our supervisors and our bosses support us. And I think that that is going to probably be the biggest uh, mental health uh, benefit that teachers can have right now as they just get with like-minded people and have the opportunity to vent. And so we've really explored kind of some of the stresses and challenges that, that our school community is facing just on so many levels. And so now 
we're, we're trying to bring kids back into school and, and, and across North Carolina, we're under all different plans. We have some that are school systems that are still all remote and we do have some schools that now have the flexibility to uh, bring our younger students back for five days a week. So uh, we're, we are everywhere, but, but obviously the goal is to get kids back in the building. What are some safety concerns that, that we need to be aware of, again, from, from the district level? And I know this kind of might be an uncomfortable topic for some of us, but uh, I think we, we, need to, we need to talk about it. Sure. I think um, one of the big things, and we had touched on it just a little bit before, is recognizing that uh, as uh, teachers and school administrators, we're often gatekeepers. We recognize problematic behaviors in children, and then we're able to get them help. And that gatekeeper role has been now absent for six months, eight months. And there's a lot of kids that they're the only mental health uh, that they get is talking to a school counselor or talking to people at school. And I was talking to a um, child psychiatrist two months ago, and she said that honestly, she feels like she has probably gone backwards at least two years uh, in, in just in the last six months because she hasn't had the ability to talk to kids. She said so many kids that she has weaned off of medication, she's had to put back on medication because she hasn't had the ability to have face-to-face conversation. And so she really feels like from a mental health perspective, the last six months have been significantly detrimental for some of these kids. Great insight. Thank you so much for sharing that. So we want to take a quick break now. Uh, we've been talking about how uh, COVID has impacted how we look at safety security in our, in our school buildings. And after the break, we want to talk about how potential civil unrest uh, could affect the school community as well. So we're speaking with Dr. Mike Klumpner of Threat Suppression Incorporated. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Kevin Smith from the membership and social media team at NCSPRA, the North Carolina School Public Relations Association. On behalf of our team and the NCSPRA Board of Directors, we hope you are enjoying this episode of School PR Drive Time. This podcast is one of many member benefits we offer you when you join NCSPRA. From engaging professional development to the recognition of your talent through the Blue Ribbon Award Program, membership has its benefits. We encourage you to follow us on social media and help spread the word about what it means to be a member of a school public relations organization that supports the mission of everyone in North Carolina's public schools. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. You're listening to School PR Drive Time, a podcast produced by NCSPRA about driving the narrative forward for public education through the work of school PR professionals. We're talking with Dr. Mike Klumpner, President of Threat Suppression Incorporated. Dr. Klumpner, we talked a lot earlier about COVID-19 related challenges. There are also a number of challenges specific to the ongoing national conversation about equity and racial injustice, which is also an important discussion happening in the homes of our students and in our virtual and face-to-face classes. Let's shift to the topic of community unrest and how it can impact our schools and our families. What are your thoughts on schools who are trying to operate in the face-to-face protests both peaceful and violent. So obviously 2020 has been just a unique year and we'll just leave it at unique. It's, it's important to note that the civil unrest that we've seen in this year, the only time that we have seen greater civil unrest uh, in the history of the United States was the Civil War. And so we are at a time right now where there is a lot of civil unrest. And I think that this is a perfect opportunity 
to start communicating, making sure that we're transparent and making sure that we're, we're accountable. But I always tell everyone before you start the narrative, start doing some research. And so this was one of the things that uh, I started doing. And, and I've been studying civil unrest now for several years. I'm going to tell you one of the, the turning points. And I was, I was involved uh, as a frontline uh, person in, as a responder in the middle of some very, very dangerous riots. And I can tell you that um, my mind is shifted in one direction. I was very angry about the riots that were occurring and why people would do this to our city and why they were taking it out on us. And we didn't have anything to do with this. And then a couple months later, I was on the road and I was in the hotel and I uh, watched a documentary and it completely changed how I think about this. And it was on, it's on Netflix. It's LA 92 and it's about the, um, the Rodney King riots. And so the important part of that documentary is for the first 45 minutes, it lays all the groundwork talking about how much racial injustice was occurring in that city to make that a powder keg and to make that one incident a powder keg. And all of a sudden I realized that there is so much more to these events. So I started doing a lot of research on civil unrest. And unfortunately here in North Carolina, we, we have some really bad skeletons in our closet. And so I think that this is now a really good time to um, have open communication, open dialogue. I think that um, teachers need to embrace this and address this with students because if they're not talking with the students about it, the students are talking with themselves about it and they're hearing about it from home. And I think that this is a really good time to open up the conversation. And there's a couple things when you open up the conversation that uh, I think is really important. First of all, understand that everyone has differences. And that's great. That's what makes us so unique. But then one of my favorite things to do is if you ever had two people who are having an argument and just cannot come to any consensus, make them call a timeout and sit down and come up with five things they have in common. And when they talk about those five things they have in common underneath each one of those, find out three more things that you have in common. I was just doing some research yesterday about uh, a protest group and uh, it's a protest group that, that we're kind of dealing with and I found out that one of the protesters is from a hometown not far from where I am and I'm I uh, was born uh, completely over on the other side of the uh, United States and all of a sudden I was like oh my gosh this guy even though he's protesting against us and, and I may not uh, agree with his views I want to talk to him about where he grew up <laughs> because we have that in common and so I think now is a perfect time to talk with kids and, and bring forth the dialogue. And I think that in bringing forth the dialogue, you, you need to understand that there are gonna be differences based on um, ethnicity, where people are from. I think that there's gonna obviously be differences based on your upbringing and um, based on what's, what's going on in your house and the dialogue that's happening in your house. But I think that we would be completely remiss and we would have lost the momentum of this year if we didn't talk about this and start saying that accountability starts with us. And so we, we are the voice of change and we can communicate and that we can explain to people why, how, how come protests, how come they turn violent? And it's, it's because frustration boils over. And so why does frustration boil over? Well, frustration boils over when people think that their voice isn't being heard or that they're being ignored. And so we can kind of use that and everything that they're seeing outside and saying, this is important in your own friendships. So you need to make sure if someone has a different opinion that you listen to them and that you take into consideration what they're talking about. 
So I think that this is a fantastic opportunity and my heart has just been absolutely broken about, you know, this, this things that have happened and the, the divide that we're seeing in our country. And, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to police officers and, and I remember I talked to one police officer and, and there was, um, a, a, a peaceful rally going on. And, uh, there was a little six-year-old uh, girl that was standing there and she was standing with her dad and she was African-American. And I remember that she started crying and she looked at the police officer and she said, are you going to hurt me? And he got down on his knees. He's like, absolutely not. He's like, I'm not going to hurt you at all. He's like, I have, I have little kids at home. He's like, you can yell, you can scream, you can do whatever you want, but you can't hurt anybody and you can't hurt other people's property. He said, but this is your right. You can do this. And it's just, oh, it breaks my heart to think that we have little kids out there that are are you know feeling because of what they're seeing that the people that are there to protect them are no longer there to protect them and that just absolutely just kills me because i i don't want my kids to to think that and i remember you know my baby boy was born in april and all this this stuff was was just starting and i i just remember holding this little baby boy in my arms and just praying over him and just saying man please have an open heart and an open mind so that this is not you. This is not going to be you in many years that you're, you're causing something like this. And so I think that those are all conversations that we have to have right now and, and continue to have it. There's no reason it should stop at the end of 2020 or, or stop when protests go away. But I certainly hope this is a year that goes down in the history books that's talked about, you know, for decades and decades to come. And, and hopefully this prevents us from getting where, where we have landed in the last several months. I think you bring up some great points. I just, I don't think we can um, underestimate just how much these, these really troubling things that are happening in our society are absolutely affecting our kids and they absolutely are affecting our teachers. And we can't do our jobs as educators if we don't, if, if we ignore this, this reality um, that for, for some it is sympathizing with what's going on and the plight of others. And then uh, for obviously for some of our students, they have real fears about leaving their house, about getting stopped by police. I mean, this is, um, this is a real concern, uh, I think for, for us. And again, we, we can't, we can't pretend like it's not happening and just focus on math when we're coming into school and just focus on reading because our kids are absolutely going through all of this um, along with us uh, and sometimes more. Um, right. So I, I, I do want to uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, and, and I sort of asked this question knowing that a lot of our schools, they're in different areas, they're in different cities, you know, that the landscape around each school is different. I would love for you, uh, Mike, to put on your security consultant hat and pretend you're walking into a, a school. Uh, tell us what what do our schools need to look like from, from maybe a physical security perspective? Um, what does that need to look like in order to keep our, our staff and our, and our um, students safe during this really uncertain time? Sure. So absolutely. Uh, and, and I do this to many schools and, and obviously I go pick up my daughter. And one of the very first things that I always want to see when I'm pulling into a school is I want to see the school resource officers police car prominently displayed at the front of the school. I always want to see that. Um, and we know that in multiple cases, that alone has stopped a perpetrator from shooting a school. So we know that Adam Lanza was targeting his high school first. He went there, he saw the school um, SRO's police car at the front of the um, building, he left, and that's when he went to the elementary school, circled it twice, realized there's no SRO and went in. 
So that's one of the very first things that I want to see. And I want to see, um, especially when it comes to after bell or before bell, I want to see the SRO prominently walking around and talking and, and having a good time with kids. Um, once you enter inside the school, I want to make sure that um, you can't easily access um, certain parts of the school. So you always have to go through the front office to get buzz back in. And I know it's, it's been frustrating for me to go in and multiple times the ID check system has been down. Or um, when you go in and they recognize you and wave you back, I don't care if I've been there 200 times, don't wave me back. I mean, always have me come in and, and it's a formality, let's get checked in and then get buzzed back in. I know that um, my wife was just showing me last night, she, um, she expressed frustration because she went to go uh, uh, pick up our daughter. She was waiting in the car rider line and saw the doors of the gymnasium had been propped open for 30 minutes and no one was, no one was there. There was absolutely no one. So you have easy access inside and out of the school. So, so those are some of the things. Uh, some of the other things is I, I like seeing a good staff presence. So staff is up and walking around, especially during changing periods. They need to be very visible. Come out of your classroom, stand there, be a good sentinel, be watching for what's going on. Um, I, I also like um, knowing that um, school staff have had um, good training. I've had, I've talked to many school staff that again, give frustration because they feel like they haven't um, had training or they have um, questions when it comes to active shooter. I don't know what I would do here. I, I know what I would do in my classroom, but I don't know what I would do in the cafeteria. I don't know. And I've, for so many um, uh, um, teachers in uh, middle schools and high schools, they've expressed the same frustration. They don't know what to do during a pep rally if shooting starts. They don't know what to do if um, uh, school has just been dismissed and it's five minutes out and now everyone's leaving the school. Do they lock the doors? They let kids back inside. There's And these are times when we frequently have shootings. I mean, the number one time for a school shooting is at lunch. That's the number one time. So if we're not training on that, and another big frustration that we see over and over and over, and I know I've talked to Ken and his folks about this, is our school bus drivers are not trained to deal with a threat that occurs on the bus. They're not trained. And so um, again, you know, if we, if we really want to look at having a high casualty count event, it would be if we had a perpetrator start shooting on a school bus. And, and we have numerous instances just in the last year where students were going to shoot up school buses and the, the, the plot got thwarted. So, so that's some of the things is, is just look from a holistic perspective of school functions. Don't just focus on the school and the school building, but make sure that you know what you're gonna do during field trips. If you don't already have a plan during a field trip, then that's gonna be problematic. So I always encourage the schools, talk with local law enforcement. You should be on a first name basis with, with those folks. Talk to the fire department, bring them in and have them do a threat assessment and understand that when they do a threat assessment, they're probably gonna show you stuff that you need to fix and some of that stuff Stuff is going to cost money, but ignorance is not bliss in this case. And so, um, I always watch, and um, and sometimes I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised. I, and, and I always love to be pleasantly surprised. But in in some of the threat assessments we've done, we do a, a, a very specific action where we we dress nice, we dress in suits, and we try and walk through schools and get as far as we can without anyone questioning us. And we've gotten very far into schools, very very far. If you just look the part and look like you know what you're doing, I mean for goodness sakes, if you put a traffic vest on and have a clipboard and a hard hat, you can get anywhere in a school. No one will stop you. And so that's what I tell everyone, you know, challenge politely, challenge politely. Everyone should be challenged and ask them what they're doing there. 
Amazing advice. And, and I'm glad you brought all of that up because I, I just, I feel like uh, as a school community, we're, we're so focused on the pandemic and a pandemic response. And I, I just, I don't want us to forget the, the fundamentals of safety, especially as we start transitioning back to uh, face-to-face learning. Dr. Kleppner, you have had years of experience and you've led some really powerful trainings with school, school leaders, with district leaders, with local law enforcement, with governmental agencies and military You've also been an uh, expert called on at, in some very high-profile active shooter events that have occurred in our nation. When we're looking at the future of school safety, say over the next 12 or 14 months, can you share what your predictions are and how best do schools and school district leaders prepare? So um, I never want to be a chicken little sky is falling, and I, I'm not a doomsdayer by any stretch of the imagination. But I need to make sure that um, schools are aware that we have had some very high profile events here recently where high school students have become radicalized by the Islamic State and have been planning major attacks. Uh, We had one in York, South Carolina. You can look that up. And um, then we had one um, just west of Charlotte. And so um, that's just within 30 miles. We've had uh, two significant events within 30 miles of where I live. And so it's interesting because whenever I teach about the adolescent school shooter, we have never focused on the terrorism nexus shooter. So now this gets as scary as it comes. And we've had these these high school students who have been talking to senior Islamic State recruiters and the senior recruiters have been telling them exactly how to carry out attacks. And so this becomes just absolutely devastating for us because we talk about kids and and kids do something called threat leakage. They, they tend to, uh, to, to leak that they're getting ready to do the attack and it's acute, it's dynamic, it's fast, uh, fact-based and accelerates as the attack is getting ready to happen. And it's, it has nothing to do with uh, a cry for help. It's them, it's the person who have, who's been disempowered and now they're regaining power and they just can't help but leak that they're getting ready to do this attack. But these senior um, recruiters will tell them exactly how to go dark and not leak at all. And that this has become so just problematic. And, and we've seen this, you know, we saw the two girls in, uh, in Minneapolis leave and go join the Islamic State and they got picked up in Frankfurt and their parents had no clue they were even gone. So, I mean, we're seeing some significant uh, changing on the landscape. So that's, that's something that I always tell people to, in schools, to look out for, look out for the radicalized student. That is so difficult to do. It's, it's very difficult to do. That's, that's one thing. The other thing that I would, um, I always caution schools is uh, be very uh, wary of vendors who are trying to sell you safety and security stuff. So um, there's, there's a lot of vendors out there that want to sell you stuff that costs a lot of money and does very little to increase your security posture and in some cases actually decreases your security posture. So I, I always tell people, please um, make sure you do the research, um, involve local law enforcement uh, before you start making purchases because there's going to be a lot of purchases that are out there that law enforcement is going to tell you this this may slow down a perpetrator but it's also going to slow down all the responders as well so I, I want people to make sure that you know the the cheapest thing that we can change is our attitude and that's 100 free <laughs> so we can do that so I, I think that's one thing um, some of the other things that we've we've got to watch for on the landscape just here in North Carolina in the last year we had teachers threatening to shoot up their schools so we've seen teachers threatening to shoot up the schools. Uh, we had a case here in North Carolina where a parent um, 
uh, was a gang member. She was mad at the teacher and school administrators, and she told the gang to do a hit on the school. So we're, we're seeing some, some dynamics that are, are changing beyond just uh, where we've been in the last five or 10 years. But a lot of this is just a reflection of what's going on in the community. So again, involve your local law enforcement. They can uh, let you know of threats in the area. Um, if you're not meeting with them on a monthly basis, then please start doing that. So that's, that's some of the things that I would uh, say that we're probably looking at in the, in the months to come. And then in the years to come, uh, I think that there's, there's going to have to come a point where we have uh, a really candid conversation with school architects. And I know that there's a big push now for open learning and big, huge, wide open spaces. And I've been in a lot of schools that, that have that open learning concept. And that makes it very hard for us to lock down and uh, to kind of mitigate and minimize threats. So I think at some point, uh, school architects and some of these school architects are really starting to kind of change and build a lot of safety um, and security features into the school. So it's gonna be interesting to kind of watch what's coming up in the next uh, several years. Mike, wonderful insight. We're going to leave it there. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but that's not what School PR Drive Time is about. Uh, so um, thank you so much for your time today. And as we wrap up, how can people find you? What's, what's the best way to get in touch with you and learn more about Threat Suppression Incorporated? Sure. Uh, if you're uh, on the internet, which everyone is, we are www.threatsuppression.com. Uh, if you want to email me, the easiest way to email me is just info at threatsuppression.com. You can certainly do that. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Mike Klumpner. And if you want to follow us for breaking public safety news, at Threat Suppress is our intelligence team at Twitter. And they put out a bunch of good stuff almost on a daily basis of interesting and important public safety stuff that happens in the United States. Wonderful resources. And we will leave all of that in the show notes as well. Mike, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. That really was an amazing conversation with Mike Klumpner. Uh, I feel like we hit on some really important topics that uh, I feel like our schools need to be aware of as we continue this, this bizarre trek through 2020. Stacia, I've had the opportunity to set through a number of Dr. Kluckner's trainings, and one of the big focuses has always been making sure you engage your local law enforcement in these conversations. I would challenge that as we look ahead, it's been pretty easy for us to focus on our communications with our local health department and these conversations for COVID-19 safety, but now more important than ever, as Dr. Kluckner has stressed in his uh, uh, podcast today with us, is the importance to re-engage law enforcement in these conversations for school safety. And of course, one of the suggestions he had offline, which I liked, was that if we don't have the, the ability to really assess our safety programs and the safety of our schools, work with our, with our neighboring school districts, work with our colleagues and peers, and, and, and possibly trade security teams, have their folks come to our campuses, walk our buildings, and allow us to walk theirs, and see where best practices are happening and where areas of concerns may need to be addressed. Absolutely. I think it's so important to rely on the resources that are around you and the relationships that, that we should be building with our community. And, and uh, I feel like it's also important to not get so distracted by 
COVID and the problems that COVID has created and that, that we ignore uh, the other, the other challenges that, that certainly um, our schools are facing. Um, there's certainly no shortage of, of issues that, that 2020 has uh, created for us, but um, again, some great advice from Mike uh, about how to uh, overcome, persevere, and of course, keep everyone safe when they're in our school buildings. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It was a great conversation. Wonderful to have you. Stacia, thank you for having me. It was a great show.